I've been to a very chaotic place before, and maybe you have been to this chaotic place yourself. Uh, it's a place called Chuck E. Cheese. Anybody ever been to <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese is the epitome of chaos. It's like Lord of the Flies in that place, people. I mean, these kids are running amok. They are everywhere. They're running around. They're screaming. They're knocking kids over. They're pushing. They're shoving. They're hurtling tables and chairs. I mean, it's, it's a crazy, crazy place. And I've never understood this part. There's all these kids. I rarely see parents. I don't even know where the parents are. Are they tied up in the back somewhere? I mean, what is going on in this place? But, but it's a chaotic, a chaotic environment. One time we were there, and uh, as you know, the, the main idea behind being at Chuck E. Cheese is get as many tickets as you can so you can go to the little counter and give your 300 tickets. It probably cost your parents about 40 bucks so you can get that five-cent bracelet, right? That's the whole idea behind it. And so we were there. Thankfully, it was a few years ago. It was the last time I've ever been. I hope to never go again. But there's this little girl. She's real cute. She's got, a, she's got a cup, and she's got all her tickets in it. She's walking. She's just probably hasn't been walking that long, and she drops her cup. This turkey vulture of a boy comes swooping in, grabs a handful of her tickets, and goes to the ticket booth. Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, Chad, what'd you do? Did you jump in? I got ready to, and I looked at that boy, and he looked back at me, and his eyes turned blood red. He started to hiss at me. He's like, and I ran, man. I was out of that place. There's no way I was going to interact with this particular kid. I think he became possessed. The first part of that story is true. The second part, as you probably imagine, is not true. Thankfully, somebody jumped in and went to that kid and like, hey, I don't think those are your tickets. But, but when I think about Chuck E. Cheese, I mean, it is pandemonium. It's craziness. Again, I think it's the epitome of chaos. If you think about that word chaos, we see chaos all over the world. And you experience chaos in your own life. Maybe it's your job is chaotic. Maybe your relationships are chaotic. Maybe getting to work and getting home from work are chaotic every single day for you. It could be your family. It could be that as you look at things that are happening in the world, you, you look at weather events and the aftermath of a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, you, you see that chaos. Maybe something more. Maybe we see chaos in our past presidential administration, and for some of us it's our present presidential administration. We see chaos there. And it could be beyond that. We see it in North Korea. We see it in Venezuela. And, of course, now we see it close to home in Charlottesville. Chaos is all around us. Our lives are full of chaos, and we experience it every single day. Today, we continue this series called Beginnings. And as we started it last week, we talked about Genesis 1. And we said when it comes to Genesis 1, it's the creation story. And so many people define their faith or find their foundation in their faith, their belief in God, their belief in the Bible, based on Genesis 1. And for some of us, it's like, wow, this is great. I believe this. And everything after it is true, and we connect with it. Others of us, we maybe struggle a little bit. I'm not sure about that. I believe more in science and evolution. And so we, we struggle. But still, our faith, the foundation in faith, how we view the Bible and how we view God comes out of that. And so the tension there is between those two things. And, and what I said last week is the Hebrew writer wasn't trying to prove anything, wasn't trying to prove creation. The Hebrew writer was trying to say was, hey, look, there's a God who loves humanity, and so much that you and I are the perfect piece of work that God has built and created, that humanity was the ultimate creation. And that story is all about that love that God has for us. Now, one of the things we didn't say last week is that the writers of Hebrew would have looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and said, this is what perfection looks like. In fact, our world at that moment lived in what would have been known as shalom. Shalom. 
Now, we think about the word shalom, we translate it into our own word called peace. But as that philosopher and warrior Inigo Montoya once said, you keep using that word, but do not think it means what you think it means. Some of you will figure that out later. But anyway, think about peace for a moment. Peace is actually a negative word. It means the lack of conflict. I mean, think about that for a moment. It means teetering on the edge. Like, at any moment, things are pretty good right now, but at any moment, things could drastically change. So shalom and peace are actually kind of different. Shalom means this, this perfect, harmonious connection with God, that everything is it's, it's the perfection of life in this relationship with God. Peace doesn't quite mean that. And yet we define it by that way because we really don't have a word that defines shalom the way that it should be defined. But within our story... We have shalom that's taking place in Genesis 1 and 2. But then we find the disruption of shalom. And we see that disruption in Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. If not, we'll put it up here on the screen. You can open up your Journey Church app, hit the notes button and follow along, or grab your program and follow along this morning too. But here's what it says, Genesis 3.1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So here we have the beginning of the story. It's interesting to me because you have a serpent, right? And the serpent is speaking. And the lady Eve is speaking back to the serpent. That's a little strange. A little freaky if you ask me. Now does that mean some people are like, well, did animals talk back then? Maybe. She didn't seem to be put off by the serpent. If I saw a serpent, I would run. She didn't seem to run. You would probably run too. She has this conversation with this particular serpent. But notice what the serpent is doing. The serpent is questioning God. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. If you know the story, God never says don't touch the fruit. God says do not eat the fruit. What we find is that Adam and Eve have done, I think, what we like to do. There's a rule in place, and then they started to add more rules to it. We see the rule, and it's like, it's a good rule. I really want to follow that, but I'm not sure I'm strong enough to do that. So we add something else. And so what did they add? They said, hey, you know, God said don't eat. And they said, mm, let's don't even touch the tree or the fruit. Oh, and by the way, did you notice they know exactly where the tree is? She says it's in the middle of the garden. I wonder how many times they walk past that tree and we're like, yeah, maybe. Tree's in the middle. They put all these rules up. Kind of like government, right? Insert government joke right here, right? Like we got a rule, let's add more things to it. The Israelites did that. God says, hey, here's Ten Commandments. The Israelite people are like, God, that's a great job. Good, we're going to follow those. Well, you know what, let's add some more. So they added 599 more laws to those 10 laws. And everybody looks around and is like, sounds great, sounds great. Then these rabbis come in and they look at all these laws, like 10 commandments, those are good. And then we're going to add these other 599 more. And then they started adding more laws. They were like, hey, we really need to make sure that we're not doing this. And so they added more laws. Thousands of laws and rules and regulations were in place. I mean, it was basically hard to just walk down the street. But this is what they did. Why? They're trying to protect themselves. And I think Adam and Eve in our story are doing just that. They added a rule to the rules to try to protect themselves. Look at verse 4. The serpent has a little comeback for him. It says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. Five verses in here, and there are four things that we've already learned in our story. The first one is, the serpent doesn't lie. So many times we say, hey, the serpent lies. The serpent actually is speaking truth to Adam and to Eve in this moment. Second thing that we find here is that God's spoken about in the third person. And just as one and two is about this relationship with God, it was a very intimate connection. There were these conversations and interactions. Now they're not talking with God, they're talking about God. And so God is here in this third person. And then we have this questioning of the boundaries of life. The serpent says, you will not die, you will be as smart as God. It's like, hey, your, your potential is so much more than just being a human. God's holding you back. There's more here. You just got to take a bite of the fruit. But then the fourth thing we find is that God's the barrier. God is the barrier within the story. He says, hey, you, you can be just like God. You can be God. The one thing that is in your way from being God is God. So here we are in these few sentences, these few words, and we have all of these different things that are happening. I think the serpent understood the human heart. Saran Kikagor once said, we are looking for a way to justify our existence. We're looking for a way to justify our existence. I think Adam and Eve were looking for a way to justify their existence. There's got to be something more than this God connection that we have, this God relationship. And so they begin to ask those questions. Why am I here? Why do I exist? And, and maybe even bigger than, than that question is what is keeping me from being who I want to be? The answer is pretty simple. It's God. God is in their way. And the serpent is playing on those temptations within Adam and Eve. Look at verse 6. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave in. And, hey, sounds like a great plan to me. And so she gives in. She eats of the fruit. But here's the next part of verse 6 that we miss. At some reason, it seems to be lost when we teach our kids a story, maybe even for us. Look at the rest of verse 6 there. It says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It seems like we paint this picture that Adam was somewhere else. He's out on the golf course. He's out playing fetch with a lion. I mean, he's busy. He's got things to do. No. Adam's standing right there beside Eve. And what does he do? He eats it too. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just stop her like, Eve, no, we can't do this. A couple of reasons that are possible, possibilities of why he does this. The first one, some scholars say he was sacrificing himself. Remember, he had been created and he had been hanging out with these animals for probably months, maybe even years. And so that was his first life. And then this woman comes into his life and he doesn't want to live life without the woman again. He knows how good it can be with her. And so he says, hey. I'm going to sacrifice myself. You're eating of this, so I'm going to eat of it too, so I can always be with you. Some people say that. Other people say Adam was a dude. He'd been spending months and years with these animals, and then all of a sudden God says, poof, here's this woman. He looks at her, he's like, she's different. She's kind of cute. She's a little curvy. Man, this is pretty awesome. I think I'm going to spend my life with her. And, and so this just the dude part comes out in him. But I think it's probably the third reason that he didn't stop her. And that was the temptation was just too tempting. 
Again, remember they knew exactly where the tree was in the garden. It's in the middle of the garden. They said, do not touch the tree. God said, don't eat it. They put all these extra rules up. Why? I think it's because they walked by maybe every single day and kind of did a little side glance at that tree. Like, maybe. Maybe we should bite it. Maybe we should touch it. Maybe we should eat the fruit. See, I think the temptation was too tempting for Adam, too. He felt like, hey, there's, there's more to life than what we're living. And Eve took it and ate, and Adam followed along and did the exact same thing. Well, what happens because of what they have done? Look at verse 7. It says, In the eyes of both of them are opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Uh, this is the beginnings, if you will, of chaos. This is the moment we find this disruption of shalom, that, that wholeness, that fullness, and that relationship with God is over with. There was this hierarchy there before between God and humanity, and it's been violated. This is the moment where there's, you get to choose obedience, you get to choose rebellion. Adam and Eve chose rebellion against God. Now, in our church worlds, we call this sin, right? This disruption of shalom. This is what sin is, this missing of, of the mark where the individual becomes more important than God. Because, again, who's the barrier? God is. This is my life. I want to do my thing. And to get to that place, that means something's in my way. And for us, many times, what's in our way is God. We take a bite out of that forbidden fruit. The barrier is God. If we think about sin for a moment, probably in your head already you have a list of what sins look like because you've disrupted shalom. I've disrupted shalom. We, we know what those sins are. And if we were to put up a big old whiteboard this morning and I just said, hey, start throwing out sins. Man, we could write on probably four or five whiteboards all kinds of different things, uh, addictions, lust, uh, extortion, gossip, our actions, our reactions, the things that we think about, the things that we do, the things that we don't do. I mean, we could, we could just make this huge list because all of us know what that looks like. We understand the bad things, right? We understand that definition of sin because we do it every day. We, we disrupt this shalom. And so we create the sin list. Those are the bad things. This morning I want to push this one step farther, though. A couple questions for you. What is it that motivates you? What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? Is it your job? You have a title that you want, and so you will get up early, and you will go hard because you want that title. Is it an income? You know what you've got to do to make a certain income, and so you, you put all your, your passion, everything that you have into that one thing. Maybe it's retirement. I know I've got to work this hard for this long so I can retire at this age and live the life I want to live. And so maybe it's your job. Maybe that's the thing that pushes you, motivates you. It could be stuff. It could be your home. You want a bigger home. You want another home. You want a beach home. You want a mountain home. You want cars, slower, faster, bigger, whatever it may be. You want gadgets or jewelry. And so everything that you do, what you're motivated by, what gets you up in the morning, those things, that stuff in your life. It could be school. 
I'm going to do really well in high school, so I'm going to make really great grades so I can get to a really good college. And then when I get in that really good college, I'm going to make really great grades there so I can go to a really good uh, grad program. And then when I finish up that grad program, I'm going to work really hard so I can get to the next grad program. So they're not going to keep getting into that next gra grad program. By the time you're 35 years old, you look back like, wow, I got like $200,000 of debt. I probably should get a job now. So you look for that really good job and get that great interview so you can pay all the debt that you've just accrued from those last 20 years of being in grad school. But this is what we do. It's what drives us. It's what motivates us. Maybe it's a community. Maybe you're like an activist. You are involved in every element of community work and service that you can think of. You go out and you feed kids. You go out and, and picket and protest, and you work in this place and that place. Why? Because you love the community. You want to see justice and peace brought into our communities. And so you, you put your time and effort in that. It could be your family. Think about your family for a moment. Some of us grew up in environments where we didn't have a whole lot. And so we have kids. And so now what do we do since we have kids? We try to give them everything that we never had. And so we work really hard, maybe two or three jobs. Because our kid says, hey, I want to play this sport. I want to be part of this activity. I want to do this in my life. We're like, yes, yes, yes. And so we just do everything we can because of the love we have for our kids. Maybe it's our spouse. We love our spouse. And they say, hey, here's some things I want. So we work hard. We, we're motivated by that to give them everything that they want. See, this is what drives us and motivates us. This is why we get up in the morning, to do these things, because we, we love these things. Now, you're saying, well, how does that connect with sin and bad things? These are good things. In fact, some of these things are, are very good things, but it's the way that we think about sin sometimes. When we think about sin, we think about not breaking the God rules, right? If you went to a Catholic school growing up, you knew there was the nun who had the wooden ruler that was like a two-by-four. And any time that you messed up, she'd, whoops, she'd whack you right on the knuckles. You'd go home. Your parents would look at your knuckles like, it looks like you had a pretty bad day today. You're like, yeah, it wasn't very much fun. I think sometimes we view God in the same way, that if we do these bad things, here's what God does. God has the cosmic ruler, and whoops, he's smacking us on the knuckles every single time. It's easy to define sin as the bad things, but, but do we realize that sometimes the good things our sin too. The good things can disrupt that shalom, that relationship we are supposed to have with God. We think it's okay, but they become the barrier between us and God. Tim Keller is an author and pastor. He said, sin is not simply doing bad things, it is putting good things in the place of God. Sometimes we don't realize that. Sometimes we think, oh, there's all these sin things up here. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job here, but, but you know what? i got to go to work. i got to do this. i got to get these things. How many times do we put those things in the place of God? How many times do we disrupt that shalom because we're so focused on the good things, at least in our life, that we think aren't barriers? I think we get to a place saying, this is all mine. This is my income, my work, my family, my stuff, my volunteer hours. This is all about me. I'm doing some great things. You may be doing some great things. At the same time, it may be a barrier between us and God. In four days from now, I will be starting my 20th year of full-time ministry. And um, not only have I been doing ministry for 20 years, but I grew up in the church. My dad is a pastor, or was a pastor, he retired last fall. But uh, from the time I was eight months old, church is all I've ever known. 
It's my DNA. It's a part of who I am. I've just lived and breathed it my whole life, except for three years where I decided I wanted to go do my own thing, which didn't work out very well. But uh, we won't talk about that this morning. Anyway, um, as, I, as I look at the church, here's what I believe about the church. It's the hope of the world. We talk so much about having government give us money and resources to make things happen. I think we forget the power the church has if we work together to make a difference in our world. I truly believe the church is the hope for our world. But here's the problem for me. Sometimes the church can be the barrier between myself and God. And you may be thinking, well, church is a good thing. I mean, you're a pastor. You only work two hours a week. You got the rest of the week to do whatever you want to do. I mean, I don't understand this. I mean, what's going on here? I work three hours a week, okay? I just want to throw that out there. Um, I can get very focused on church work. I can think about a program or an event or a project or something that I'm writing or sermon material or sermon series. And I can just get so focused on that that I can get to a place of where that becomes more important than God. Where I can say, I'm going to put all my time over here and I spend more time. I stay away from my family. I'm not there with them as much as I should be. I can get away from God. I can get to a place where I'm not praying and reading scripture and taking the time to just soak in the Bible like I should be. Why? Because I think I'm doing something really good. I'm doing church work. I'm, I'm doing God's work. Look what I've been called to do. You know what? Sometimes in my life, the church can be my barrier between myself and God because it's about me. And it's not about God. Do you know what I'm doing in that moment? I'm sinning. I'm disrupting that shalom. See, those bad things, they're easy. They're easy to know what they are, but sometimes it's the good things that get in the way of our ability to connect and build that relationship with God. What is it for you? What are the bad things? You know those. What are the good things? What are the things that you think about and you live for and you, you, you just are driven by and you're motivated by because potentially those good things are the barrier between you and God. The serpent in our story says, hey, Adam and Eve, God's in the way. And Adam and Eve said, you're right, God is in the way. They chose to eat from the forbidden fruit. You and I, we hear the same thing. Hey, guess what, guys? God's in your way. And we say, you know what? You're right, God is in my way. And we choose to eat from that forbidden fruit too. And in those moments, we disrupt that shalom, that harmonious relationship with God. If you know the story you know that they are punished. Uh, if you look through some of the p other parts of Genesis 3, you may be asking yourself, well, I thought if they ate from the fruit they were supposed to die. They did. They died a spiritual death in that moment. There was, again, this, this break with this relationship with God. And so we see this spiritual death that happens. But then, um, but then God says, hey, you guys are out. I'm kicking you out of this garden. He could have said, hey, you're done. I'm done with humanity. But it doesn't. He, he says, hey, you guys are out. Move on. Adam, you're going to have to work really hard. Eve, you're going to have a little bit of, of pain when you have kids. Okay, you're going to have a whole lot of pain when you have kids. It's going to be painful. It's going to be tough. But this is what you chose. I said, obey me. You chose rebellion. I say, I want shalom with me. And you said, no, you're a barrier God. And so this is where you find yourself. But, but here's what I love about this story. There's a miracle in it. If you look at verse 21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary, Genesis, said, when facts warrant death, God insists on life for his creatures. We look at this story and sin 
warranted death for Adam and Eve. But what did God do? God provided for them. Humanity built this barrier up between them and God. And God says, you know what? I know you've done this. I know you think this is right. I still care for you. I still want to protect you. And I still love you. But do you notice what God does? God kills an animal. We don't have any uh, record of this before this moment. God kills an animal and says, here's my blood sacrifice for you. You don't deserve this. You have put this barrier up between you, yourself and, and me, but here's the deal. I still love you. And so God kills this animal to show the love that he has for humanity, to show the love he has for Adam and Eve, even in their sin. God still loved them. In John 10, verse 10, it says, I came so that everyone would have life and have it in its fullest. We defined shalom and what shalom looked like. When we look up that word fullest, and maybe your translation says abundant, it means exceeding. It means beyond normal, that this is, this is more than, than anything you can imagine. And so Jesus says, hey, guys, guess what? I am here to, to bring you this, this abundant life, this, this amazing life. I'm here to bring you back to shalom, this relationship with God. And what do we find happens with Jesus? Jesus comes to this earth, and God says, hey, guys, you know what? You choose rebellion over obedience every single time, but I still love you. And here's my son. Here's Jesus, and Jesus is that blood sacrifice for you and for me. Now, is there a connection between the story in Genesis 3 and the, the blood sacrifice of Jesus we find in the New Testament? I think there probably is. Because if we look at both of those stories, we find God does whatever God can do to love humanity. And here in the New Testament, we find that God does the ultimate by giving his son Jesus to be that amazing blood sacrifice for you and for me. Why? To bring us back into shalom to give us that opportunity to be connected in that relationship with God that God intended from the very beginning. That's God's love for you and for me. That's the story that we find ourselves in. Maybe this morning as you hear this, you're trying to figure out what your next step may be. For some of us here this morning, it may just be a reminder that this is God's love, that, that you have all these things that are on this, this whiteboard, and, and you know what God does? God erased all that. You understand that. You're connected to that. And so for you, maybe it's just a reminder. This is what my life is about, that God loved me enough to send his son as this blood sacrifice so that I can create and be back in this relationship of shalom with God. Maybe for others of you this morning, you hear the story, and you're thinking to yourself, I've been following Christ, but, but I haven't said that I'm all in. Or, or maybe you haven't followed Christ, and today you're saying, hey, I want to be all in with this. So maybe today is the day you're like, hey, I want to talk about baptism with you. I want to know what baptism's about. And we'd love to talk to you about that. You can fill that out on your connection card and put that in the offering tray as they're passed. You can come up here during communion. We can talk through that. And if you're like, I want to be baptized today, we can make that happen. But I want us to realize the power of the blood of Christ and what it's meant for in this, this connection, this, this reattachment of that relationship with God to be in shalom with God. Maybe for others of us here this morning, in fact, I would say this, for all of us here this morning, we look at what's taking place in Charlottesville and we think, look at those people. 
Look what they're doing. Look at the racism and bigotry, and it's horrible. But do you realize they're not really any different than us? They're really not. Our words may not be the same. Our actions are definitely not the same, thankfully. But we're still sinners. We're still disrupting shalom. And there's still a God who loves every single one of us, even though we do and say horrible things. God still loves us. And God says, here's my son. Here's my blood sacrifice for you. It all starts in our hearts. It's about me. It's about myself. It's about what I want. And God, so many times, is our barrier. God says, I don't, I don't need that barrier there. I want to pull that barrier away. Here's my son, Jesus. And maybe that's the place we need to be today, is just reminded of that sacrifice God made for us. Amazing part for me, and this is why I love our church and the churches I have been a part of. We get to come together every week, and we get to take the bread, and we get to take the juice. And you know what? It's that reminder of that sacrifice. It's a reminder that we do bad things. It's a reminder that we do good things that are a barrier to ourselves and God. And yet, no matter who we are, no matter the horrible things we do, no matter how we act, there's still a God who loves us so much that God said, here's my son. When Jesus died for us, but the beauty of the story is he came back to life. That gives us hope for now and for all eternity. And we get to do this this morning as a church community. And as, as we do that, as we focus, I pray, I pray that you would ask for God to lead us back into shalom with him.